Racism is a sin. In seeking to address the sin of racism in our church, we do so seeking to follow a biblical imperative which we share with all followers of Christ. Our work is not a battle in a culture war, but rather a call to arms against the evil and pernicious sin of racism. Our mandate flows not from identity politics, but from our identity in Christ. This is our primary identity, and it is in the character and being of Christ that we find the reason and motivation to combat racism. We recognise that the image of God, present in humanity at creation, is disfigured by sin. Sin leads to estrangement from God, self and others, furthering fractured relationships. We share together the understanding that racism is a sin. Racial sin disfigures God's image in each one of us. Racial sin dehumanises people by taking away their fundamental God-given human dignity. Wherever racial sin flourishes systematically, either in society or in our church, we must challenge it together. We must repent of racial sin, turn away from racism, and be reconciled so that we may all experience the love of God. That poll was from the Archbishop's Anti-Racism Task Force, which you can find on the Diocese website under Racial Justice, on a very important topic on this uh, Black History Month special today. Yes, um, very sobering start to our podcast. Not our normal jokey start there, Ben, but a topic that we wanted to discuss and look at, and uh, we want to take this fantastic opportunity to do that. We're sat in um, St. Peter and St. Oswald's Church, um, and we are here with our special guest. So I'm just going to read a short bio. There's a lot in this bio, so I may jump through some of it. That's okay. That's absolutely fine. We've checked that out, <laughs> listeners. Um, so we're here with the Reverend Anesia Nascimento de Jesus Cook. Is that okay? Did I say that all right? That's okay. Nascimento means birth. Right. So from birth, I was already, you know, in line to be a priest, I suppose. If we had time, we would go into the Brazilian Portuguese ways of naming people, which is a fascinating topic in our, in itself, but we haven't got time, no, but we'd no. love to talk about that. Born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and is now a proud resident of South Yorkshire, married to Jonathan Cook since 1999, with two stepsons and an extended family and friends across the region. On leaving university in Sao Paulo, Anisia had a career in print and radio journalism before being ordained on the 12th of April 1991 and ordained priest on the 1st of May 1993 in the Episcopal Anglican Church of Brazil, ahead of ordination for women in this country. That's right, yes, isn't it? Yes, they were ordained in 1984, the first woman. So, that's, so you were ahead of the curve again in Brazil. Oh, there's a roll of the eyes there, which means, <laughs> that means there's other things that aren't ahead of Don't the curve. Don't start with that. No. <laughs> we could go in a whole different oh, direction. Oh, my goodness. No, no. Anisia holds an MA in Theology and Religious Studies from York St. John University, following study at the Ecumenical Institute of the World Council of Churches in Geneva. Her experience includes research on the lives of black and indigenous women, working as prostitutes, and their relationship with local churches. She served in ministry and development for parishes ranging from southern Brazil to the south of England and various parts of South Yorkshire. She is a member of the Church of England National Directory of Mentors and at diocese level the Bishop's Advisor on Black, Asian and Minority Anglicans and a vocation advisor with particular focus on UK ME vocations. She's now the Vicar of the Parish of St. Peter and St. Oswald's where we are sat covering the Abbeydale, Bannerdale and Nether Edge areas of Sheffield. Got through that. 
It's so fantastic to have you and lovely to be in the Lady Chapel here. What a beautiful building. Thank you for having me. Thank no, you. No, you're very Thank welcome. for this opportunity. Right. I was saying off mic, I've run past here many times. It's on one of my running routes, but I've never actually been inside. And it's a lot bigger inside than I thought it would be. But it's, um, well, it, we noticed it straight away as soon as we came in. It's, yes, just, lovely. it's absolutely stunning here. And it's lovely to discuss this important topic in this chapel. Thank you. Ben, I think we need to sort of start off with what your role is and how you seal your role across the diocese. It's a massively important topic. It's not something that we're going to be able to do full justice in this next 35, 40 minutes. But for you, your role across the diocese, what do you see yourself as doing? So it's um, I'm a kind of advisor, um, you know, encouraging the diocese to, to, to be aware, to keep uh, racism on, on the agenda and to create uh, opportunities and strategies to encourage people from minority ethnic backgrounds to come forward um, uh, to, you know, to be ministers, either ordained or lay. Uh, part of the work is affirm and support uh, people from minority ethnic, ethnic backgrounds in front of different churches. They always call for an, a piece of advice or something happens. It's just a support to them, really. And it's obviously something that's been at the heart of who you are and what you've done ever since you became ordained, and I presume before that. But why has it taken on such special significance for you now, or has it just been something that has been running through the core of your ministry since you started? I told you a story, you know, I went to St. Mary's to preach at St. Mary's Bramall Lane and there is this young, beautiful, black girl and she looked at me, I think I was the first black priest that she, she, she saw in her life. So, and being there with the, with the host and, uh, and giving communion to them, her lights, her eyes lit up. So I think because of that, I want the church to, to be a place where little children like that wouldn't feel so overwhelmed, but would see that that is a place for them to, that they too can have a place at their altar, that they can be uh, a minister in the, you know, in their own right, not the odd one. At the moment, I'm, you know, there are a few of us uh, now, but I don't want to be the only one uh, in the church in Sheffield uh, that are black. So why not? Not why not encourage others to to step in? That's a really powerful image, Anissa. And I know at St Mary's Bramall Lane, there's a very diverse congregation. And we saw recently Development Day, the youth from Bramall Lane, and that was just fantastic, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? Oh, I was in tears. I, I said, yes. <laughs> it was a beautiful was moment great. as they just stood at the back and started to sing. And because I, I was stood behind them, I could see people going, looking around. It was a beautiful moment, wasn't it? Yes. Just the sound of children's voices yes. leading us to worship was was just was beautiful. It is. I think it was. I think that was the first time that we did that, isn't it? And and that to 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 recognise that to bring those children up the front, it help others from other parishes to say, do you know, I can do that too. My church, if St. Mary's can, why can't I? You know, I think, it's, I think that is, is so important for us, not just for me, but for every person, every member of our churches, because it's not just us black people, it's just 
every white, Asian, every color, because that is what how God created us. Uh, a multicolored uh, people, multicolored uh, world, and called us, invite us to be a family, to live as siblings in Christ. And uh, if we don't have that in our churches, I think we're failing. It's really worth anyone who's listening to go on the Diocese Facebook page because Giles Morrison's taking some fantastic photos of the youth from Bramall Lane at um, Development Day. So do have a look because some fantastic images there. And I know that I've spoken before to Miriam Kavanagh um, on sort of youth schemes going on at Bramall Lane, another great ad advocate of racial justice. And it's one of the great things that you and Miriam and others have done to raise that awareness. And I, I think it's on us collectively as a diocese to make sure that we're spreading that awareness as much as possible. It is, uh, but it sometimes you feel that it's just us. You know, we need, obviously, uh, because we didn't create racism. The black people didn't create racism. It's not our creation. So therefore, we, we need advocates. And uh, it's hard because people come and say, oh, I'm not a racist. I say, well, I'm not calling you a racist. It's not enough being non-racist. It's not enough. We need to be anti-racism, racists. We need to be anti-racists. To fight, to understand where people come from. How can we empathize with our brothers and sisters from different ethnicities if we don't understand their pain, what they have to go through on a daily basis? hundred percent. I think we're saying as well off mic, it's unconscious bias as well, isn't it? Because I'm sure, as you've said, the vast majority of people would say, well, I'm not racist, but actually the, the biases we're not aware of that we should need to tackle, don't we? And be, you know, make sure it doesn't happen. Precisely because we do have those uh, micro uh, aggressions, you know. I remember uh, one church in which uh, a lady has been going to the church for so many years. And then when she was asked about to be part of uh, the stewards, the welcoming team, someone said she is Jamaican. Jamaicans never arrive in time. And uh, so when, when I, was, I was spoke to this woman, she said, well, I've been here for so many years and nobody never asked me to put the cat away and you want me to be. Uh, by the door welcoming people say, yes, I do. So for many, many years, she never been invited because she was Jamaican. Actually, she wasn't Jamaican. She wasn't Jamaican. So, but she was classed as Jamaican and that doesn't arrive in time. So she was prevented to take a role that uh, would be absolutely amazing. And she did brilliantly. And as she was, before the, the services started, and she was the last one to go, uh, to go home. So I think is we need to be aware of that because we prevent people without noticing to come forward to do things that normally, naturally, people wouldn't uh, wouldn't go for them because they don't see them. And that's a perfect example of unconscious bias, isn't it? Because Precisely. I'm sure they would have argued there was no malice intended and they were being friendly, but actually, not only is it offensive, but they've prevented someone from, from serving God. That's the thing. And this is quite easy, it's a normal joke, isn't it? So I think you need to be aware of that. Uh, and how uh, harmful and hurtful that attitude is. 
to, to each other. So when we say, when we talk about racism, it's not calling people racist uh, as such, but is inviting people to engage in a safe ground, in a safe ground to, to engage with the issues uh, of racism, because so, uh, we, we, we don't know where people come from. We don't know what, what are their motivations. We don't engage with them because we don't see color. So the colorblind society is quite, is, is bad as a racist society because I don't see you. I don't see your color. So therefore I don't think I want to engage with what you will face on a daily basis. And it's about not being complacent as well. I think this this affects every generation. I think every generation has to take it seriously because uh, I can't speak for you, Paul, but for, my, for myself, it's a cliche of I can't be racist. My I've got a best friend who is black, but that does happen. And as you know, someone who's thirty one, I have seen that in my generation. It's not just an old generation thing. No, and um, so I was at university in my, in the nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties, in a in in Coventry which was a, a, an early adventure into multiculturalism, whatever that means. And uh, there were race riots in Coventry. And um, I demonstrated with the Anti-Nazi League. I stood with those people. But that was, that was something that I almost became inordinately proud of, that I wasn't a racist because I stood with the Anti-Nazi League. I demonstrated against the rate the race riots I stood against that sort of injustice and I I felt coming into um, you know into the 2010s and so on I think we've come a long way in the same way as we say blindly we've come a long way in terms of gender politics we've come such a long way but I feel post you know pandemic Black Lives Matter stuff that I had to really reassess my own unconscious prejudice that I felt that I didn't have. And I would have easily have looked you in the eye and said, well, I'm not racist. I, I demonstrated against racism in the 80s. Of course I'm not. But it's only as we've really dug into that, as the unconscious bias that people like me have, that it's really shocked me and stunned me. Books like Why I'm Not Talking to White People About Race, all those sort of books, has called into question for me my whole attitudes. And I... I I find myself crying sometimes, even sitting here with you, that I have been part of that. And so how do you speak to people like me that think I'm a white liberal man, but I realize that I've still got a long, long way to go. So what are the questions that I should ask and what should I be doing? I think it's a long, it's a long process. I think you have already started that process. Um, you know, thinking you are aware of of who you are and where you are. So I think this is the first step. The second step is to stand alongside those uh, who are being discriminated against because of the color of the skin, to, to make your voice heard, to, 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 to fight, to protest, to, to make sure to, to ask the question, hang on a minute, this city, this town, this parish, so diverse, where are the black people, where are the minority ethnic groups here? Is to instigate, to ask the questions. We need people like that. We need pe people to call out what is racism and what is missing, who is not around the table, 
who is not um, part may a member of the, the group that makes decisions. We have moved, we have come long, long way, but we can't do that work by ourselves because you don't have the power to make, to legislate, to, to make the laws, we don't have that power. There are people there, white middle class, and that is, we needed to, uh, to, to, to challenge that and to make sure that is always that we always call out what racism is. And the journey's ongoing, isn't it? I know not quite the same as with you, Paul, but when I was in sixth form, we were studying the civil rights movement in America, which was really eye-opening and obviously shocking and upsetting. And so I think I too fell into the trap of thinking, like, oh, this is all appalling. Therefore, I'm not a racist, which of course I'm not, but getting complacent and... At that time, Barack Obama was elected the first black president of America, and it just seemed like such a huge moment, and obviously it was, but it's, it was far too tempting to think that's the end of the path now. We've got a black president, leader of the free world. Racism's going to stop. Obviously, that's totally not the case, and it's just continuing that journey, isn't it, and not being complacent. Precisely, because we tend... I hear a lot why do you speak about racism. We're not America. I said, well... We're not. <laughs> We're not. <laughs> not. But, um, you know, ask you, have you asked about your black friend? How he does, how does he feel about it? I don't have black friends. I said, how on earth you as a white middle class man can come to me, a black woman, and say there is no racism? Because you're, black, you're white. You don't know. You don't know how. So I think it, it, it is quite... Um, quite painful, but it has to be. I think we need to recognize that here there is racism as much as the United States. A black man is, uh, is bound to be uh, stopped by, by, the, by the police three times more than a white if he's driving a nice car. Even Doreen um, Lawrence, um, Stephen Lawrence's uh, mother has this has stopped by a police car because she was driving a nice car. So we are more bound to be stopped by the police just because of color or skin in England. I'm not talking about, talk about United States. So I think this is the first thing is to recognize that it exists and call it as such. Absolutely, and I think so much is transcribed from American politics that we might very well say, oh, we're not America, but actually, there are far more similarities, good and bad, than we realize. So before we get on to Black History Month, I just wanted to, so coming out of the pandemic around the times of, of Black Lives Matter, when there was, a, there was again a bit of a gear change in the way that things were reported and looked at, at the Floyd's incident in America and a number of other instances in America. What do you feel now as there's a pushback against the whole Black Lives Matter that, you know, the taking the knee at football grounds has become almost controversial rather than how do you feel that did you just feel that as the inherent racism in in this country pushing back against something or is there something more going on here um i think first i think the black lives matter became a prophetic in my view a prophetic movement calling out what racism is uh calling 
white middle class people to understand their privilege that we don't have that privilege so the privilege is yours so do something with that privilege that you have please and i think that what it just was amazing to see that wave of movement and the question is why why now why now because we are tired because we are tired our children are tired to be picked on because of the color of their skin so that we're tired and we're still tired so as every movement that starts there is always that wave um you know strong the the, the big moment the, uh, the climax of it and then people go home and they start doing their own movements their own work in the church of england it was exactly the same so it took quite few, 23 reports on race, institutional racism in the Church of England. And we just now, just now, 20, since the 80s, there have been reports. And now we're beginning to put something in place. So there is the racial, uh, racial unit, justice unit. There is the Archbishop's um, Race Commission. So we're just beginning to grasp now and to understand, to encourage diocese and its parish to engage. But I don't think it, the movement is not that. It, ta it, takes, it, it, ta it took a different form, because people go home and say, well, we need to do something, because if you don't, it's going to be another lost life. I think one of the most pernicious things that went against the movement was an odd Black Lives Matter so important, but you had the refrain or the retort. Don't, don't say it, Ben. <laughs> well, I'm saying it because it's, it has to be turned apart because it is so pernicious, but you had people saying all lives matter. And that was one of the most frustrating things I have to say because it was, rather than thinking, yes, black lives matter, this is a serious issue, racism is a serious issue. Too many people, very vocal people, took it as an attack on them, which of course that's not how it is intended. The whole issue is that racism is awful it's pernicious, it's unconscious and conscious. But I just found that one of the most frustrating things that that sort of took off. All lives matter. Yes, it's true. But there is um, a large proportion of our society that don't matter. That's the thing. We're not saying that white lives matter. It doesn't matter. You're not saying that. We are saying that black lives matter too that we want to, to have the same respect. Our children want to go to school and be and go to school and learn about their history without being laughed at, without being picked up on the ground, the school grounds. We want to, the young people to walk on the streets with their hair the way how they want without being laughed at. So life, black lives, at the moment, it doesn't matter, don't matter. So that's why you have to cry, black lives matter, it matter too, because that's how God created us. So I'm gonna go here. How does it make you feel? Uh, don't. <laughs> you started. I know, I started, <laughs> I'm sorry. I did start. You know, if you laugh, I laugh with you. If you cry, um, I cry with yeah, you. Yeah, bless your heart. Um, <laughs> How does it make you feel when you have a recent party conference and 
certain members of certain political parties dismiss the idea of multiculturalism as a failed project and we have we just have that sort of language that comes back that that it's always about the other it's the other's fault how 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 does that make you feel and i'm i'm happy for you to really express that but how do we get to that point in a society where we look at the even the government governing party of the day is pushing back against the idea that there is an issue here i think is um, as a black woman i think that i would distinguish the question from uh from uh, a black from um a women's point of view as well so if a, a woman is raped attacked is because of her she is the one that instigate her own rape is the color uh, is the color of her lips is the color of her nails is the clothes that she wears therefore she is the perpetrator to her own um, rape. With the racism, it's quite similar. So the problem is, you, you know, this is a democratic society and the opportunity is, is for everyone. So if you don't, it's your fault. So we're being victimized again uh, for not being part of that. But the doors are shut. So it makes us feel, not just myself, but, you know, everyone that comes from minority ethnic group completely shut out from, from, uh, from that. Because that's how we feel, that we, we don't matter. We're not worth it. Um, you know, we're not there. They don't see us as, um, as human beings. And that's why Black, uh, Black History Month is important. Uh, is not to to, uh, to call out, but is to remind ourselves to call out racism too, but also to be reminded ourselves that um, we are overlooked, black people are overlooked, and that they contributed to the building of this country in different areas, in different, with the different jobs. Each one of them contributed. It's part of our, our history and this is overlooked. So I think that is why it's important to engage with, with, um, with the issues that Black History Month brings to allow ourselves to learn that they, they, they have made and is still making a positive contribution. It's just letting people be aware of that, isn't it? I mean, we've seen with the Windrush scandal, you know, how enriching the Windrush generation were to this country, and yet the prejudice they faced, despite what, you know, nothing that they'd done wrong at all. It was just how we treated them as a government. It's just that all sort of feeds into history, doesn't it? Making sure that people are aware of that, and that's just what it's saying. So as we talk about Black History Month, what would you like to see across the churches of, of, of Sheffield or across the, the wider Church of England? What would you like to see? What would you want to happen during this month? Not that we should diminish it into a month, but as we have designated this month, what would you like to see happen? I would like to see, uh, to see what happened with the climate change. We started off 
thinking about, we produced resources, there was some talking, the church acknowledged that there is a crisis and the church is engaged and we continue to engage. So I would like to see the Church of England, its dioceses and parishes to engage the same way that we engage with the climate change. It's not much to ask. <laughs> so I, I no, it's fantastic. I work extensively across the diocese and, and, and things that we we bump into carbon net zero everywhere we go. I, I, we can't do anything without bumping into carbon net zero. Precisely. I, I have no issue with that whatsoever. Let's make that clear. I'm 100% behind that concept. But you're absolutely right. I don't bump into the concept of Black History Month or anything around racial equality, diversity in the same way as I bump into that. And from your point of view, you say that has to be as big a profile as, as 2030's target. Precisely. It's not either or. No, we're no, we're that. not saying that. I'm not we saying that. We are engaged here. Yes. We're just being awarded a, eco -church. Uh, the Eco Church yes. bronze. We're moving. Yes. Uh, and I'm encouraging my, my, my members to engage with agenda, but as well as with the racism. Because uh, I think as a church, we don't, um, what we do in church to worship is not just for, for us to feel uh, good about ourselves, but to help us to act on what we prayed in this place outside. We empower, we encourage our members to engage those sort of issues. We don't need to have black minority groups in the congregation to engage with the issues, but it's our responsibility to teach our members to be responsible out there. And it's it's on, you know, from a from a comms team point of view, it's on us as a team to make sure that we raise awareness to those issues too. And again, don't get too complacent. Um, you know, we've mentioned the great work that you do and Miriam do and others, but it's also making sure it's not the same individuals that have all the pressure placed on them to sort of spread resources, raise issues, do more talks. I think it's it's up to all of us to to do more on that. So for a uh, a small parish church that has an extensively white population, maybe of a specific socioeconomic group, but will have a white population. Do you feel that it's still important during Black History Month that they portray something during that month? Because there will be those people around within the Church of England who say, well, it's, nothing, it's not, you know, we haven't got any black people in our congregation, so we don't feel qualified to say anything about this. What would your repost, what would your reply be to that? I hear that all the time. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I could see your uh, listeners, you could see the smile all the, time. all the time, yeah. All the time. I would say, I say well, actually, uh, you don't need a child to be abused uh, in order to have a safeguarding strategy. Uh, you, that prevents, the strategy, safeguarding strategy, prevent child and young people to be abused is the same with race. So we encourage, what I was saying before, we encourage our members to be proactive, to be disciples out there, to be aware um, in their workplace. How do they relate uh, with their workplace colleagues? Do they engage in the racist jokes? Or do they challenge the racist jokes that they, they, uh, they say? They support their work colleagues or not? So it's, 
if a white middle-class church engage with a black history month, they'll be black people in that community that would say, oh my goodness, it's so good to hear, to see that. They think of us. And that's something. Anissa, I'd love to sort of delve a bit more back into your background. And, oh dear. Um, no, it's, <laughs> you were saying earlier, looking at this biography, there's so much to sort of delve into and so many interesting points. I think it's, it's only right that we sort okay. of go into a bit more detail on that. So we've mentioned that you were ordained at a time when, you know, before ordination of women uh, was allowed here in the UK. Just tell me through when you first came to the UK in South Yorkshire and what sort of drew you here? Right. I um, I was working as, um, as a reporter. I worked for um, a publishing house that was, was sponsored by Church um, Christian Aid. So, and then we had a lot of, um, was, part, was publishing uh, good material, good theological material, as well as news. And that was the time to the dictatorship, the military dictatorship. And, the, and part of the publishing house was to encourage and affirm those who, the dissident voices that, you know, that didn't agree with the, with the government. And the Christian aid had um, an important role in helping us to support and encourage uh, the congregations, the, uh, the Protestant congregations in Brazil to speak up against um, an evil regime in Brazil. So and then uh, they set up with, uh, together with the members of uh, other agencies in England, like USPG, the Church of England, CAFOD and others, to bring a group of um, missionaries from the global south. So there were 12 of us based at the Diocese of St. Albans and working with the communities, um, raising of profiles, social issues, racism and all sorts of stuff. There were quite young groups, there were 12, there were people from Nepal to United States, including different African countries. It was amazing working together. And each of us bringing a different um, point of view, a different perspective of how to, to work with the communities and the church engages with those issues that we're talking about. That's fascinating. And it's, um, I think it shows the, the extent of your social outreach and sense of justice, which I think it's fair to say has informed your ministry, you know, throughout your time in ordination. It has. Uh, uh, I was something like 14, 15, going to part of um, the, pre the place where I was born is quite similar to Sheffield in terms of geography. And we share history, the same history of trade unions. So from the beginning, our Sunday school had a van. And during the strikes in the 80s, we we traveled along, um, around the villages collecting food and clothing for the workers on a strike. And that went on for, year, for a couple of years at least and was part of. So I was quite young. So and our vicar used to send the children first to collect food, <laughs> to knock on people's doors. So they never said no to us. So that was good. But we always went with a little... Uh, with, with a little card, so that is to support the families. So it was at quite early age that I realized that there was a disparity. It's still, uh, it's still all a big gap between rich and poor, but from the beginning uh, of my childhood, I realized that there is that 
uh, that disparity and uh, the church that was part of engaged uh, with that. So I was quite proud to be part of that church. And it's it's an obvious thing to say that obviously Sao Paulo is very different to Sheffield, although you've mentioned some similarities there. <laughs> but um, obviously a very obvious point. But in terms of, you know, in terms of racial justice and tackling racial justice, how different is your approach from Sao Paulo to Sheffield or is that approach actually the same? Right. Um, we are... Um, the, pop the, the black population in Brazil is bigger than the white. It's larger than the white to begin with. But we're not there. We're not there. So, and then we have problem, you know, some problem with the people uh, from minority ethnic backgrounds that don't, don't, they don't see themselves black. They like me, you know, brown. I'm not black enough. So they don't engage with the issues of racism because if they do, they're going to be discriminated against. So they don't. So there is a difference there, and uh, and sometimes you find I found in my um, in my life a lot of people you know there is no such racism. But when you go when you look for a job, and there was a time in my time you have to send you had to send a photograph of yourself. You have, there was a title, we, you must be in good appearance, to have a good appearance or something like that. And good appearance mean, means white. So if you have a Afro hair or, you know, we speak with a different accent, so you wouldn't be uh, taken seriously. And the black, uh, the black in Brazil was um, arrived from um, African countries in the 1500s. So we're there <laughs> from the beginning. So it didn't arrive uh, half through the century there. We're part of from the beginning. So when you traveled from a society that was um, overtly racist in those sort of ways and came to Britain, did you expect to meet that same restrictions when you got here or did you see from abroad that oh it'll be okay because Britain it's the, or did you just see it as Britain the empire what what did you expect coming over um I had a friend who said what what are you going to do there is only white people so and um when I first turned the television on in England and was what's his name uh ITV presenter and um, Trevor McDonald. Trevor McDonald, yeah. I was, you know, I was in tears because he just looked like my father. He just looked at, I said, this is my father. And why I was in tears? Because I was coming into a European country, right? And with a TV presenter that was black and that we, we didn't have a TV presenter, a black TV presenter in Brazil when I left. We didn't have it. I saw in England for the first time in my life. Even Japanese, Sao Paulo is a, has a large concentration of Japanese people, even Japanese. We wouldn't have a Japanese either. So I think it was, it was quite a shock. It was quite a shock. I said, oh my goodness, there are black people in this country. So it was quite, it was quite amazing. It was a good 
good, good shock actually to know that I wouldn't be the only one. But then little by little, you know, engaging with um, other Af uh, Afro-Caribbean people from different minority uh, groups that we could feel that wasn't as it seems. There was, you know, a long battle has been fought, but the, it hasn't finished yet, it's ongoing. So it was good to know to to see that, but it was through that engagement that I said, "Well, work needs to be done here." I think that's a lovely parallel with the girl you met at St Mary's Bramall Lane. Precisely, yeah. precisely. And then yes. looking through your bio, you you spent times as chaplain to the police. You've worked in large institutions that I think. Many of us already knew were institutionally racist and misogynist. We knew that, but now that, for many of them, is starting to be called out in sometimes quite a significant way. So when you worked within those institutions, Church of England, police force, other institutions you worked with, how did that impact you when you found to be within those institutions that there was this level of institutional racism, misogyny, and, um, you know, it's a double whammy for you, isn't it? Precisely, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it is the sort of feeling, oh, God, not here. <laughs> not here, too. So I think that is the same, it is that feeling of tiredness, weariness, um, pain comes, too. Uh, but also there is a sense of, Maybe I'm too, I don't know, optimistic, idealistic, I don't know, that I believe that we have the power to build up a better society. And it's my duty to do that as a citizen and as, as a Christian, as a woman, to do that. And that I always strove to do, I, you know, that I always did that, trying to do that, the police, uh, the, um, when I was the Lord Mayor, the chaplain to the Lord Mayor, was amazing walking with her in Sheffield. Do a woman priest and black woman priest. How does that work? I could see their eyes moving around. And they come and ask all those questions. Sometimes the questions are quite good questions, others not so. But you have to, to build up your resilience, grace, you just can't go attacking people. Just have to meet people where they are, and and take each person by the hand, one step at a time, one step at a time, and recognize. I think that is part of the unconscious bias training that we do in the diocese is to allow people to understand their own biases and uh, and making changes. And that that's the choice that we make is first is recognizing our own biases and say, well, I think I need to change. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to fr frame this question, but I'm going to try and say some words and hope they make sense. But okay. So we believe that the, the three of us believe that at some point this whole world will be redeemed into a new heaven and a new earth through the grace of God, through the love of Christ towards this world. How does that fit into the justice, the racial justice that is required? Do you understand the question? There's, mm -hmm. there's a point. We talk about the redemption of creation. In all of creation, the stones will cry out. How does that work in terms of racial justice? What has to happen to the church, to its 
congregations, to its communities, to change, to allow the grace of God to be released into the concept of racial justice? I'm not sure that's a question, but I, I've, I've got thoughts around what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think I got, I probably, maybe I got the gist of it. I think is uh, yes, I think all creation will be redeemed, but that redemption begins here. Right, the kingdom of God begins here. Jesus constantly went around. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus constantly was compassionate, met the people where they are, including those who came from, who are coming from a different religion and different uh, race, ethnicity from his. And he's always met people where they are. He couldn't have said, "Well, actually, you're going to be redeemed when you die." So why? Why engage with you? So it's the same. So we are, we are disciples of Christ. We called to bring light and to call out what darkness is, that a lot of people in this country live in darkness because of racism, literally. And, uh, and so we have to make sure that we bring that light and encourage and support them here because we are co-builders, aren't we? Because otherwise, if we wouldn't just sit, and why would we, we do the things that we do? Why do we engage with the climate? Why we engage with um, safeguarding issues if everything is going to be redeemed? So, yes, it's going to be redeemed, but until it's redeemed, I have a work to do. And the work is now, and we have to do that now. I think one of the many pitfalls we have to avoid is getting beyond Black History Month and thinking, that's the Awareness Month done, let's relax because we can't relax what other pitfalls do you think we need to avoid or do our best to avoid to make sure that these sort of issues don't get swept under the rug i think is is important to there are some criticism regarding black history month why morgan freeman was the one what was, was an actor that said what you want to celebrate what my people did just one month so i said no it's just to is a start point. We have to start somewhere, but making sure that um, we we have racial justice Sunday in February. I, I had the privilege to be part of a team that organises resources for Black History Month and uh, Racial Justice Sunday uh, to be used by the National Church, by the Church of England. It was amazing privilege to be there. So they are. Resort, liturgical resources that our churches can use. Uh, we can uh, make sure that the churches, and that St. Mary's, we have that youth group. They didn't appear just like that because they, the ministers there, the church wardens, the ministers, support and encourage us, you know, come on. I think you, 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 you're going to be a really good writer, a, a reader, or, or just come along support and encourage to make sure that people from other ethnicity groups are part of the congregation in their own right, rather than to sit at the back, come and go and nobody notices. We need to be intentional, to be proactive uh, in between October to October. So you just give a little bit, you know, October we celebrate what has been achieved, but how can we encourage it and affirm those in our own locality during those months that we don't celebrate? We celebrate the one that is in our communities. I think every month is Black History Month is the sort of message we should be taking. I think it is. 
I think definitely. I think our time is coming to an end. Um, I wanted to say thank you. Me too, as well. It's been thank a you, real privilege. Paul. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Made me cry at least three times. Which is not okay. <laughs> he gets me going. He starts crying. <laughs> so sorry. My well. kids know it's hopeless for me, but thank you so much for your honesty, for your reflection. Thank you for engaging with us. Um, and uh, we we just play the blessing of Christ on your life to help this church, this diocese, this community, this the Church of England engage with this topic, which is of huge importance. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say thank you for allowing us to come. Yeah, and I, I, I echo those sentiments. And just thank you for not put, putting a filter on anything because there's been some really difficult topics discussed today. It's a very serious issue, but thank you for speaking so candidly about it and about your background. I think it's been really illuminating. And I hope we learn from it and I hope we all do more to push for racial justice. Thank you. And thank you both. And I hope that one day we won't have moments like that so that everybody would be just normal you know just part of it that we don't need it to have a racial justice officer or someone to call out what racism is because it's not one part of our society i am a dreamer Amen. thank you thank, thank you, you. Thank, thank you very much thank you, thank you.